We're going to continue with our study in the book of Colossians. And this morning's theme to our study in the book of Colossians is nailed to the cross. I want us to talk about what has been nailed to the cross. Or more important, who has been nailed to the cross. And we're going to be discussing that just so that you know. Just so that you know. I approached this morning's message with a trembling, with a trembling, not fearful, not fearful, but with an understanding of the magnitude of the contained in these few verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, I want you to know that, frankly, I, I shudder at the responsibility of conveying the enormity of death that these verses reveal to us as members of the body of Christ. So I want you to be praying for me as I preach this message, because there are some doctrinal truths that I think it's imperative that the church, the body of, under, uh, the body of Christ, understands who we are in Christ and what all that's an indication of. And so what Paul is, is telling this church in Colossae is extremely deep, deep theological, doctrinal truths. And you blessed by understanding those truths. Batteries down. Yes, yes just keep it on this one here then, and I won't jump around and, or try not to. If I do, just go. Okay? Everybody do that. So I ask that you pray for me. As a matter of fact, pray with me as we go to God now. Father, as we come before you this morning, our desire, as we mentioned earlier, is to exalt you. And Father, what a joy, what a privilege it is to be able to preach your word. And so, Father, I come before you recognizing my inadequacies. I come before you recognizing my limited ability to preach and teach such profound doctrinal truths when it comes to identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ and Him. So, Father, I just take control of this service, take control of this mic situation, take control of of the things that are said. Father, may you be glorified. Father, may the Holy Spirit just move and work through all that we say and do here today. And we'll be careful to give you the glory for it, for it's in that name that's above all other names. It is in the name of the one who is high above all powers and all authorities. It's in the name of the one in whom we are part of that we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Amen. Well, the last time that we were here and we talked about the book of Colossians, and we were studying the book of Colossians, uh, we talked about the fact that we are complete in Him. We are complete in Him. Um, which means that there's nothing lacking. There's nothing needed the good news about this is that we're complete in Him, and we don't need to add, but. We are complete in Him, but. No, God's Word is very clear. We are complete in Him, period. There's nothing else that man can do. There's nothing we can add to the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. We are complete in him. Man tries, and that's part of what this chapter 2 is about. Man tries to add to the all-sufficiency of Christ. But it's just man's way of wanting to add religion to that glorious, perfect relationship that God invites us to have with him through Christ. So all of man's religions, all of man's... Uh, and I'm not talking about 
Hinduism and Buddhism and, and some of these other world religions. I'm talking about churches that are active right now that are preaching certain things that you have to do in order to satisfy the righteous requirements of God. I'm here to tell you those righteous requirements have been met in Christ. You are complete in Him. There's absolutely nothing else needed. There's no way you can make God love you more. He already loves you perfectly. There's no way that you can, nothing you can do to make God more gracious. He already has saved you with a perfect grace. Perfect grace. And so as we come before him, we want to recognize the glorious truth, the fact that we are complete in Christ. Nothing lacking. Nothing else needed. And the verse 9 of Colossians and we've already looked at that, but go there real quick again. Colossians chapter 2, looking, looking, looking at verse 9. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That he is the one that has the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You want to know God the Father? You want to know uh, God the Spirit? You have to know God the Son. In Christ Jesus, in Him bodily is the fullness of the Godhead. And as believers, we are in Him, Christ Jesus. And it says that we are complete in Him. He is the head, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, is the fact that He is the head, Christ Jesus' is head of the body. We are part of that body. He is all supreme, and he is, he is the head of all, of all powers, all principalities. He's above all. We're in him. As a matter of fact, Ephesians tells us, well, here in Colossians, it tells us that, that he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But Ephesians 1 tells us, the church, that we bring him to completion. Christ Jesus is who he is because Church, we fill him up. I, I am not exactly sure how to explain or express that doctrinal truth in its entirety, but I got to tell you, it should cause goose pimples. It should cause you to just rejoice with gladness knowing who you are in Christ. For in Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, you know, tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? Who do we wrestle against? But against principality and power. Leaders of the darkness of this, this world. He's ahead of all of that. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Jesus Christ is over that. He has gotten victory, as we're going to see, over that. And we're in Him. So when God's Word says that He's not given us the spirit of fear, it's because the victory is ours in Christ. And we have to absolutely understand that truth and claim it and understand our identification with Christ. That's the doctrine I want to talk to you about this morning. Our identification with Christ. By virtue of us being in Christ, we identify with Him. Let me ask you a question this morning. Was the Lord Jesus crucified? He was. You know what God's Word says? You were crucified. The Lord Jesus died. Guess what God's word says? You've died also. Was the Lord Jesus crucified? Yes, he was. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. All the things that Christ Jesus endured and suffered and accomplished by virtue of the fact that we are in Him, we too identify with all of those things. Now, we're about to get into why that's really 
an area that causes us to want to do a jig, to want us to dance and glorify Him and rejoice if I can only dance. I can't. But growing up Baptist, that was okay. You weren't... But anyway, that's a whole other topic. We are in Christ. We have been crucified with Him. We have been buried with Him. We have been made the righteousness of Him in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 That we have been made the righteousness of God. How? In Christ. We've been made the righteousness of God in Christ. There's nothing righteousness about us. As a matter of fact, God's Word says there are none righteous, no, not one, until you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it's not your righteousness that, can, that causes you to pat yourself on the back. It's not your righteousness that causes you to go, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. No, it's the righteousness that we have as we are in Christ, the body of Christ. We have the righteousness of God in Christ. You know, Paul talks about that in Romans 3, that there was the righteousness of the law. The law is holy. There was the righteousness of the law. But the law couldn't get it done. Paul goes on to talk about now about the, 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 the law of righteousness that's in Christ. That's the one we enjoy. That's the one we cling to. That's the one that makes us who we are as members of the body of Christ. And folks, that's the way God sees us. That should cause you to worship and bow down and glorify Him. Because the way God sees each and every one of us is in His Son he sees us in Christ Jesus. And it is the faithfulness of Christ to the cross. It's the payment of Christ on Calvary's cross. It's the fact that the tomb is empty. It's everything that Christ endured. God, God the Father sees us as having endured. And we are safe. We are sealed. We are secure in Him. And that's what Paul is trying to get across to this church in Colossae. Because they were being confronted with some man-made religious thought. The Gnostics were trying to come up and, and, and the Judaizers and all of these people were coming in saying you have to obey this law. You have to obey this religious uh, aspect. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. Paul was willing to tell them, no, you are complete in Christ. You, by faith, take him at his word. And God saves you. You are complete in him. Verse 11, that's where we're going to start this morning. Verse 11, in whom, talking about Christ, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So, you were circumcised believer, those who by faith have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been circumcised with a spiritual circumcision. And as we talk about identifying with Christ, that's the place to start is with this topic of circumcision. Now, circumcision had to do with the cutting away of the foreskin. It, had to, it was related to death. I'm going to show you how that is in just a second. But you have been circumcised. You have been cut away with spiritually by the working of God. And you need to see yourself in that position in identifying with Christ. You have been put to death. That's what that circumcision represents. Uh, to understand circumcision, go to Genesis 17. Genesis 17 is when it circumcision was first introduced by God to Abram. Abram, the name meant exalted father, but God changed his name to Abraham, which means father of multitudes, because it was all based on God's promise to Abraham that what, how he was going to bless him. 
And Abraham believed God even before the blessings came. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Because here he believed God. God was going to do something wonderful and glorious in his life. Start with verse 1 of Genesis 17. And when Abram was 90 years old and 9, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and he said unto him, now remember, God had promised Abraham years and years and years and years before this, okay, of what he was going to do. It was years before this that God had promised Abraham, I'm going to bless them that bless you, I'm going to curse them that curse you. But now Abraham is 99 years old. And he said unto him, I am the Almighty God, or I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and I will multi- multiply thee exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, or exalted father, but thy name shall be Abraham, father of multitudes. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful and I will make nations of thee and kings shall come out of thee and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee and I will give thee and I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. And every man child shall be, shall you, and every man child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token or a sign of the covenant between me and you. So if the seed of Abraham wants to identify with this promise, if they want to identify as the children of God, then a sign or a token of that relationship, the way they identify with this was through circumcision, the cutting away. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money or any stranger which is not of thy seed, he that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant." And the, uncir- and the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. So circumcision was an extremely important aspect of identifying Abraham with that covenant that God had made between him and Abraham. It starts here in Colossians Paul talks about a circumcision that is not made with hands. It is a spiritual circumcision. That circumcision in Genesis with Abraham and then with Isaac, that covenant with Isaac, that covenant with Jacob, then covenant with the 12 sons of Jacob, in other words, the the nation of Israel, that all identified them as uh, the children of God. And that covenant was realized by that that act. And the other aspect of it, you say, well, why, why that act? Why, why that? Why circumcision? Couldn't he pick something else? An earlobe off. I just had no surgery. But I mean, there's so many different things that God could have done. But the promise that God says, I'm going to make you a great nation when he was 99 years old... God used the thing that was going to cause, and and not wanting to get silly, not wanting to get 
and, and makes kind of a, but but I don't I don't have to describe or point out why God chose circumcision because Hebrews chapter 12 tells us or 11 verse 12 tells us that Abraham considered himself dead Pharaoh was 90 99 and 90 and God has said I'm going to make you a great nation your attitude is what yeah right you better get started, God, if you're going to do it. So God chose the thing, that covenant, that sign, that token, that says you consider yourself dead, but with God all things are possible. I'm going to show you that this is God. I'm going to prove to you that this is my work, that it has nothing to do with you, it has nothing to do with Sarah. Abraham, you consider yourself dead, but I'm telling you, I'm going to make you a great nation. And the covenant, the sign of that covenant, the sign of that promise is the cutting away, basically the, the, the destroying, if you will, or, or the cutting away of that which God is going to use to carry out his plan and purpose. And God's word tells us in Colossians that you have been circumcised with a spiritual circumcision, one not made with hands. That, now that phrase is also used in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, when it talks about how we groan for a new body. We groan for, to, be, to be housed in our heavenly body. And it describes that heavenly body as a body that's not what? Made with hands. Made with hands. This is a spiritual circumcision. It is a, it's talking about a, a spiritual death, a cutting away. Is what Paul is referring to here. You are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You identify with him and his death. That's what this circumcision represents here. And what God can do with, if, with, with that death, the death of Christ, and how it applies to you, you are dead with Christ. Verse 12 talks about circumcision, talking about that, the death, and, and you have been circumcised, that the cutting away has taken place. Now you are buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. This baptism, I hope you all know by now, it's not water. Amen? Okay. It's not water. Amen? Amen. It's spirit baptism. It's by that, that, that baptism, you are buried with him in baptism. As a matter of fact, Christ talks about in Luke 12, 50. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, talking about his death, talking about what was coming. That baptism where he, he did die. But you've been buried with him in baptism wherein you are also risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. It is God that did it. It is God who's, who has supernaturally circumcised you. It is God who has spiritually buried you in Christ. It is God who has spiritually resurrected you in Christ. You identify with his death, with his burial, with his resurrection, with his ascension, Ascension, where is Christ? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. We are in Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us that we have been seated together with Him in the heavenlies. All about that identification we have in Christ. You have been placed in His body. You have been sealed there by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. I'll tell you this. If there's anything that could separate the Lord Jesus Christ from God the Father, then something can separate you. But I've got news for you. There's nothing that can separate you from or Christ from the love of God, from the love of the Father. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ. That has to do with that identification that we have with Him. Look with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We just looked at this this past Wednesday night in our Bible study. 
talking about the circumcision and how you are to reckon yourselves in identifying with Christ. Start with verse 1. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How can you that are dead to sin live any longer therein? God's Word says that you're dead to sin. How, how come you're dead to sin? Because you're in Christ. Christ died. You died. It's what God's Word says. That, by faith we accept that. By faith that's how we see ourselves because that's the way God the Father sees us. Know you, know you not that so many of us as were baptized water? No. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? How in the world did you get into the Lord Jesus Christ? 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that by the Spirit you were baptized into the body of Christ. That Spirit baptism that takes place the moment a person believes and you are placed into the body of Christ where God wants you, you are sealed there until the day of redemption. Don't you know that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism, not water. I resent people thinking that water baptism does anything other than getting a person wet and their garments clinging to them. That's the only thing water baptism does. I think water baptism is an insult to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Water baptism is. I think you're saying, God, what Christ did on Calvary's cross, it is not sufficient. Here, let us add to that. That's what water baptism is. And it angers me. It angers me that people would want to add something to what God has done so perfectly. And that's dying on a cross to save us from our sins. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, it talks about the identification that we have with Christ we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man, that old Adamic nature, that, that relationship we had with Adam, the first Adam, Adam in the garden, that our old man is crucified with Him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. The word there, destroy, means to be rendered inactive. It means to be abolished. In God's mind, in God's eyes, because of what Christ has done for you, and because of the fact that you're in Christ, God sees you before Him perfect. You go, oh man. Does that mean I can go and sin and do anything I want to do? God's Word says, God forbid. God forbid. You know, you show me a person that believes that, and I'll show you somebody who has not been redeemed by the blood of Christ. That our old man is crucified with him. Oh, the glorious truth of the fact that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. There's two attitudes we need to have. 
Church, listen, you need to understand that you have died with Christ. You've been crucified with Christ. You need to understand that position, that you have died with Him, and now you are to walk in the newness of life. You are to consider yourself dead in Christ, but you are to recognize yourself in the newness of life, understanding that resurrection power that's available to believers in Christ right now. Am I saying you're not going to sin? No, I'm not going to say that, because guess what? You are going to sin. If we say we don't have any sin, the truth's not in us. Amen? Some of you are really shaking your heads. And we need to talk about that. Ralph, but anyway. No. Our old man is crucified. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dies no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he lives, he lives unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. But alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is to be the attitude of those who have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. Uh, example that I gave Wednesday night that I think really is appropriate here is see the law no longer has jurisdiction over us. It's what God's word says in verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you for you're not under the law but you're under grace. See the enemy can no longer point to you and go you dirty rotten scoundrel you have no right to be in heaven you, you, you have sinned. Let me remind you of all the sin in your life. Let me remind you of all the bad things you've done. That's the way the devil, that's the way our enemy wants to do it. But I'm here to tell you that because of your relationship with Christ, because you are in Christ, and you identify with his death, burial, and resurrection, you are no longer under the law. You are under God's grace. And it would be just like somebody that goes and robs a bank. And they steal all the money and they take all the money bags and they go running out to their car and they jump in their car and they're sinners and they've done wrong. They've broken the law. And they go barreling down the road and the police get behind them and their sirens are going and, and they're chasing them and this guy gets up to 80 miles an hour and then 100 miles an hour and 120 miles and he tries to make this curve and he can't make this curve and he crashes and he dies. Now he just sinned. He broke the speed limit. He robbed a bank. Maybe a whole lot of other laws. But guess what the police are not going to do? They're not going to come up and read him his Miranda rights, are they? As he's there on the side of the road, they're not going to say, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right, well, whatever the Miranda rights. See, I've never had them read to me. So that's okay. So do you know the No, I'm going to quit picking on Ralph just because he sits down here close to the front. They're, they're not going to come and handcuff him. They're not going to haul him off to jail. Why? The law no longer has jurisdiction because he's dead. God's Word says, reckon yourselves to be dead, but alive unto Christ. Because you identify with Him. You're not under the law. Sin only has dominion over you as long as you are alive. But you are dead. God's Word talks about being dead in sin. And that's, you don't want to be dead in sin. Right? But it also talks about being dead to sin. Dead to the effects of sin. And the judgment of sin. You're in Christ. And the wages of sin is death. But I'm telling you, the one who loves you more than you could ever love yourself, 
He died in your place. Back to Colossians 2. We're buried with him in baptism wherein you are also risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. It is God who has placed you there. It, it, that, that, that salvation was all the operation of God. It was all that he did. And you, verse 13... And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened, made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. All trespasses. There's none that are lingering. There are none. There's not any back there that God is going to say, who, I saw that, and the blood of Christ didn't cover that. I got news for you. Every sin you ever committed, every sin that you will ever commit is under the blood of God Himself who died on Calvary's cross. Hallelujah. Quickened together with Him. Quickened, made alive, having forgiven you all trespasses. See, with the uncircumcision of your flesh, and dead in your sins, that describes someone who does not identify with Christ. That identifies someone who is in Adam. You identify with the first Adam, not the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't want to be in that Adam. You don't want that to be a description of you with an uncircumcision, dead in your sins. You want to be alive unto Christ. Verse 14, folks. And this is the scripture that causes me to shudder. This is the scripture that causes me to step back and say, Oh, Lord Jesus, I am not able to convey what has taken place with this verse. It's talked about the operation of God. It's talked about the fact that we've been circumcised. We've been buried. We have died. Basically, when he talks about the circumcision, the death, talks about the burial, talks about the resurrection, what, is, what was Paul presenting to these people here? Somebody say the gospel. The gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection. That's what Paul is talking about here. The gospel, the saving gospel. He's explaining it there. He has forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. What, what ordinances are you talking about there? The law. The law. Law can no longer condemn that person who is in Christ, who has Dead in Christ. Not dead in your sins, but dead in Christ. The law no longer has jurisdiction because of who you are in Christ. And did Christ fulfill the law? Let me give you a hint. Absolutely. Yes. You are in Him. It's all about that position we have in Christ. I am not saying that you are going to be able to leave here and walk out these doors and not sin. I am not saying that because I'm not expecting you to do it because I know others of you may do it. I, I'm, I'm, I know. But here's what I can tell you. By virtue of your position in Christ, the law that condemns, the law, and the, the purpose of the law is holy. The law is holy. The law is righteous. What the law does, by the law is the knowledge of sin. The reason our loving, heavenly God, uh, merciful God, gave the law is so that sin would become more what? Sinful. It, the law was given so that man would know exactly how sinful he really is and how desperately he needs God. He needs God's grace and God's mercy. 
But it's because of the Lord Jesus Christ blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. I'd say the law is contrary to us. It shows us for what we actually are. And you know what we actually are? People who need Jesus Christ. That's what, it, what the law shows is that we need God's grace. We can't do it on our own. We can't function on our own. We can't do it on our own. Listen, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. Nailing it to His cross. There's a song. I was thinking about playing it. I'm not going to play it today. But there's a song that talks about the fact when when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And it's a beautiful song. I mean, it's, it's pretty and it, it just makes you kind of weep that when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. But I've got news for you. When he was on the cross, you were on the cross. That's how far-reaching the power and the grace of God goes. Your sin was on the cross. It was more than just you on his mind. In God's mind, you were there. Your sins were there. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We read part of that verse a while ago, but let's, let's read the whole, the whole part. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us. Folks, understand that there was no sin with the perfect Lamb of God. He was sinless. He was perfect. Death had no claim on Him. The wages of sin is death. But if you don't sin, death has no claim. He was the sinless one. He was God Himself. But God the Father made God the Son sin for us. That's why I say, you were on the cross. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What an exchange. Lord, here are my sins. I give them to you and he gladly takes them upon himself. And God says, okay, here is my righteousness. That's an unbelievable, but you better believe it, trait. That a holy God who loves us so much would take upon Himself that vileness that we possess and give us back that righteousness which He possesses. blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. God has just told us how glorious our salvation is. The fact that our, all of our sin was nailed to the cross. He's blotted out all, that law that will say, condemned, condemned, condemned. No, it's paid for, paid for, paid for. You're dead in Christ. You're dead in Christ. You're alive in Christ. Death no longer has a dominion over you. That is the, that is the deep doctrinal truth that we need to understand. But then he goes from that deep doctrinal truth that should send us to our knees in gratitude and appreciation and with, and, and with understanding that heaven is our home. That eternal life is ours. That it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is, oh my, his eternal life through Jesus Christ. But then the next verse, 
What else did the cross accomplish? What else did the cross accomplish? Not only did it accomplish our salvation, not only was he delivered for our offenses, but that next verse, I I like this. And having spoiled principalities and powers. You know those same principalities and powers that he's over? And I, I... i got to tell you, I don't begin to understand or tell you that I can describe or explain about the powers and authorities of heaven and God's creation other than tell you there's a lot more out there. There's a lot more out there in God's creation. And you can go to Daniel and he talks about the, the prince of this country and the power of that country and, and, and with the fallen angels and those that follow Satan and, and the spirit of wickedness in high places and, and, uh, and the fact that the, the gospel the angels desire to look into because it affects all of creation. Uh, the expectation of Satan ever since the garden when he was when when God told him I'm going to uh, you're going to bruise uh, his heel but he's going to bruise your head and the fight is on the battle has been on here we find that it's Christ because of the cross he has spoiled the principalities and powers and he made a show of them openly he made a he, he descended into the lower parts of the earth According to Scripture. And he preached, he heralded to those spirits, I did it. I won. You didn't win. See, I think there was a much more of a battle. I mean, God is all powerful and they didn't stand a chance against him, but that didn't mean they didn't try. That didn't mean that they that there was not uh, a tremendous war that has been going on. Because Satan wants to be worshiped. And God's word tells us that he's the God of this world. He's the prince and power of the air. That's why when people say, well, why would a loving God allow this to happen? Because the God of this world is not loving. The God of this world, the one that causes all the, the heartache and the pain and the sickness and, and all the, 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 the horrible things that you can imagine, that is not the God of heaven. That's the God of this world. That is Satan. And at the fall, Abraham, uh, uh, Adam, pretty much turned over that authority to him. Remember when Satan came to Christ in the wilderness and said, I'm going to give you, uh, you bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world? You don't have those kingdoms. You don't have that authority. He didn't say it. You know why? Because Satan has that authority. He has that authority. But here in verse, verse 15, and having spoiled, that is what the cross did. It spoiled the principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. That triumphing, it, it has to do with a processional, a processional of a power and might. It's not a fairy tale. It's what has taken place. Blotting out the handwriting, oh, what, what all the cross accomplished. It definitely put Satan in his place and all of his minions. And it put us in our place. Our place in Christ. I pray this morning that you all know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. I hope this morning that each and every person here understands the salvation that a loving God offers to everyone who believes based on the complete and finished work of Christ. In order to be saved, in order to have, and, and, and not just saved, I'm talking about have that reconnection, that reconciliation to have that special relationship with God who loves you so much, what you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what you do is you believe that He died for you. You believe that He was born. believe that He rose again. You believe that He was delivered for your offenses. Take it personally. And he was raised again for your justification.
That's what we believe. And the moment you believe that, God does His work, as we're going to find out next week, God does His work in your life to perform that work, to justify you, to sanctify you, to do all the things to save you, redeem you. God does all of that when you believe in the sufficiency of Christ who is the head of the church. He is the head. God delights in making you part of His body. Let's pray. Father, how I thank You this morning that Your your salvation is complete, it's total, and it's free. Father, to all who will but believe. Father, how I thank you this morning that those who know you as Savior, we are complete in Christ. There's nothing lacking. There's nothing more that we need to do. That we are safely in Him. Father, I'm thankful this morning that it's not about my follow-up and the work that I do or the labor that I put in, that my salvation is secure because of Christ Jesus and His shed blood. Father, I come acknowledging this morning that there is absolutely nothing I could do to add one iota to my salvation. Father, how thankful I am that I can't do anything to make you love me more for you already love me with a perfect love in Christ. Father, I thank you for that glorious truth. But Father, it's because of that salvation. It's because of that relationship. It's because of what you've done. My desire is to serve you, to live for you. Father, to be the one that you can use to glorify your name. Father, may I acknowledge that I am dead in Christ, but I am alive unto God with service and with dedication. Father, may that be the attitude of believers today. May that be the attitude of this local assembly. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's holy and most precious. Amen.